0: Please turn again in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We'll be reading chapters 1 and 2. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who, t- who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must Pay much close attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just, just retribution how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders And various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will for it was for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking it has been testified somewhere what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you have made him for a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, and because the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise and again I will put my trust in him and again behold I and the children God has given me since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery.
1: Thank you, Branson, for that scripture reading. A bit of a long passage, but it gives us a, a wonderful overview of the person of Christ and, and of his ministry. And in our sermon this morning, I, that's what we will be focusing on. You can open your Bibles to, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which will be our text. So in our our last sermon, we we looked at at verse 15, and we we reviewed the church and its nature and its mission. We talked about the church as a household of God and and how that reflects our relationship to God as as our Father and to each other as as brothers and sisters, and how we have been adopted as sons of God, which is described in, in Ephesians 1. We also talked about how we're assembly of God's children, his representation on earth, his ambassadors, for a king who has an interest in in expanding his kingdom to all peoples and to all nations. And then finally we talked about one of the duties of the church is to be faithful in proclaiming and displaying and defending the truth. And so if you had to identify one of the Or if you had to identify the single most important truth of the Christian faith, what would you say that is? If there's only one doctrine that you could pick as being central to our identity as Christians, and that gives substance to every other belief that we have, what would it be? Would you pick the nature of humanity, of sin, or the character of God, the Holy Spirit, or the church? Well I'm going to argue today that, that the nature and person of Christ is the, the single most important truth of the Christian faith. And granted to understand the significance of Christ, we need to have an understanding of, of all these other doctrines. But it's the person and the work of Christ that sets Christianity apart from all the other religions and all the other cults of Christianity. And there's many different religions, depending on your sources. Um, some people say that there's five main religions, and, and others say that there's tens of thousands of religions and, and subgroups of religions. But every one of those groups has some explanation for, for the nature of reality. What, what is the situation that we're in? And, and they usually acknowledge that, that there's some problem, and, and they have their own prescription for, for how we fix that problem. But usually, the burden lies on the individual to, to achieve or perform or avoid certain things to, in order to, to become right with whoever their deity is. And Christianity is really the only religion that, that teaches that the solution to our problems is not within us, it is not within our power to, to achieve the solution, but it's outside of ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the solution to the problem of, of brokenness and sin and failure and evil and despair and hopelessness and whatever else you want to call the problem that we see in our lives and in our world is found in the person of Jesus Christ. But today, as, as it was in the early church, people have twisted the truth about Jesus. They, they accept the person of Jesus, but they they adjust Jesus to fit what they want to believe about him they like for Jesus to be a model of, of love or they like Jesus to, to be a model of, of sacrificial death but they don't want Jesus to be the authority that tells them how to live and so you have all the cults that that claim to be Christian but but modify their their doctrine of Christ to, to fit uh, the way that that they would like to to see him But as we see in our text today, that there's certain fundamental truths about who Jesus was and and what he did that, that cannot be neglected, and that is central to every Christian denomination. And it really is the defining line between what is Christian and what is not Christian. So let's read our text, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. You'll notice that the preceding verse ends with describing the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth. And that is followed by this verse, which begins, Great indeed, we confess. And this wording in the, in the ESV doesn't put it quite as, as starkly as, as some other versions, which use words like, most certainly, or without controversy, or beyond all question. The idea is, is that of introducing a, a very important and fundamental idea. The, the, this is the only place in the Bible that this Greek word is used, but it has the idea of everyone agreeing on or saying the same thing. So this is not a a negotiable thing. This is not an idea that's up for discussion. And while we said last time that the flow of this this book is somewhat interrupted by this little section here, it, it fits into the theme of the book that we've been discussing, which is the importance of maintaining true doctrine and, and rejecting false teachers and the importance of, of leaders being qualified and, and, as we'll see later in the book, of, of those leaders effectively leading the church that results in, in the uh, maturing of, of believers. I'm going to take just a few minutes to talk about the importance of truth and our understanding of truth and how it affects the way that we approach the idea of, of God or of Jesus um, as described in this passage. The, the philosophical understanding of truth in our culture has has shifted as we've moved away from an acceptance of the reality of God. And philosophers have have been working on redefining truth from to be something that, that is created by consensus or constructed over time, or it just simply it's defined as something that works for a particular society. Norman Geisler is an apologist who co-wrote a book on truth, and he outlines six characteristics of truth that I'd like to review quickly. Number one, truth is discovered, not invented. Number two, truth is transcultural. If something is true, it is true for all people, in all places, at all times. Three, truth is unchanging, even though our beliefs about truth change. Four, beliefs cannot change a fact, no matter how sincerely they are held. Five, truth is not affected by the attitude of the one professing it. And six, all truths are absolute truths. Even truths that appear to be relative are absolute. So if we accept this perspective of truth, it it demands the existence of an objective reality. We're saying that that truth is something that exists in spite of our ability to understand it, in spite of our ability to see it. It, It's there regardless of of our position under it. So by extension, you have to basically accept the, the reality of, of, a, of a sovereign God or of some theistic being that, that establishes this truth. Now before I lose you by getting into a deep philosophical discussion, or before I lose myself, this matters because it informs the way that we think about ethics and morality, So we can all agree that that two plus two is is four because it's observable and repeatable. But when you take a philosophy class in in college, for example, and they start talking about ethics and morality and and right and wrong, and then it it becomes a a muddled mess as as they describe how cultures define right and wrong and and what is acceptable and not acceptable. And and it's basically just a bunch of of relativism. We can't really know what's right and wrong um, outside of any particular culture, because morality and, and truth and knowledge is all known in relation to the culture that we're in and to our historical context. So anything that happens to be true for us isn't necessarily true for the next person in, in the next culture, and if it's not true for them, and then we really don't have any basis for setting up absolute moral standards. So let's let's see how this works in our public education system. So it, um, in 1925 was the famous Scopes Trial. The Scopes Trial was, was a basically a debate that was set up between the modernists and the fundamentalists over whether evolution should be taught in schools. And there was a, a high school teacher, John Scopes, who kind of volunteered to be charged with the crime of teaching evolution which was against the law in the state of Tennessee. And so they they had the most powerful um, lawyers and and thinkers in the country basically converged on this little town of of Dayton, Tennessee, to have a debate on the merits of, of creation versus evolution. But in the end, he was found guilty of teaching evolution and was fined $100. And so it wasn't until the 1960s that the evolution kind of started to come around again into the, into the public schools. And some states began to, to pass laws that said that, that evolution had to be taught alongside with, with creation uh, theory in the schools. And then a little bit later in the 1980s, the courts began to rule that, that creation could not be taught in the public schools because it was religion and not a science and finally in 1987 a Supreme Court rule declared that creation could not be taught in any public schools and later in in 2005 there was another court decision that prohibited the teaching of intelligent design theory which which isn't specifically creationism but it's critical of of evolutionary thought and and teaches that that there is evidence for, for intelligent design and so as as our culture rejected the, the existence of a sovereign God, it, it, it had to reject cre- the idea of creation. And so you, you can see just in, in 90 years' time how, how evolution goes from being against the law to, to where teaching creation is against the law. And, and on the heels of this rejection of, of creationism, and along with, with the prohibition of, of prayers in public schools, we have to, debates today that only 10 years ago would have been laughable. And it's this whole issue of, of gender identity and who gets to use which bathroom in, in schools. It, it would have been a, a ridiculous conversation only a number of years ago, but it is the logical end of a worldview that rejects the existence of an objective reality. And so if if we, if, if we insist that reality... Is, um, is determined by us or by the society, then, then there's no problem with, with this worldview. Which brings us back to our text. The church is to be a pillar of the truth, a truth that is objective and unchanging. And this is truth that is without controversy and beyond all question. So how does he describe this? He says it is the mystery of godliness. So notice that that godliness is closely connected to truth. What do we mean by godliness? We generally think of of holiness, that that thing of of living the way we should, of of ordering our lives the way that that God wants us to. And and godliness includes that, but I, I like the definition from one Bible dictionary that says, godliness is first of all a respect for God, that affects the way a person lives. And there's a book titled Everyone's a Theologian, which also has that idea, whether we admit it or not, we have ideas about God and about reality that that shape the way we live. So to live godly lives, we must first have a knowledge of God that informs and shapes the way that we order our lives. And this is reflected in the way Not only the the kind of moral choices that we make, but the way we manage our time, the way we invest our resources, the way we relate to our family and our community, and the way we plan for our future. And in in relation to our moral decisions, sometimes we just try to apply external controls to to kind of manage our sinful appetites, and we find it necessary to to apply those controls to our, our children's sinful appetites, and, and that works at least temporarily in restraining evil. But if, if our idea that we can achieve or maintain godliness by, by external controls, we will either violate our controls or we will establish a false sense of godliness. So the, the proper view of Jesus is essential in developing a life of godliness. And later on in this book, 1 Timothy 6, 3, we see that the wrong view of Jesus will lead to ungodly living. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The source of godliness is in the person of Jesus Christ, in whom we experience deliverance from our sins and transformation of our hearts. And it is in Christ we find the example that we should follow, and as we focus on the glory of Christ, As we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So there's six statements about the person of Christ in this verse, and I want to look briefly at at each of these statements. And as as was mentioned, it was thought this was probably an early creedal statement or, or hymn of the church. It is certainly a poetic expression of of some of the most fundamental truths about the person of Christ. There's a couple different ways we could categorize this. Some people point out that there's three couplets, and each couplet talks about a physical reality and a spiritual reality. So we have flesh and spirit, angels, nations, world, and glory. And others look at it in a chronological order. It mostly fits in a chronological order, Um, and I suppose in the end it doesn't really matter how we group it so much as as we accept what it says. So let's look at the the first statement, he was manifested in the flesh. The Greek here never actually tells us that this is talking about God. The the oldest manuscripts just are, are translated who or he who. Uh, and some of the later manuscripts apparently inserted the word God for, for clarity, but it is obvious from, from the rest of, of the passage that, that this is talking about Jesus. And, and this is, is one of the, the most important truths about our understanding of Christ. This idea that he came in the flesh, and we see this throughout the, the gospels and, and the epistles, and it's it's quite clear. Uh, One of the the, um, classic passages is the Gospel of John, chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And and this is kind of the the litmus test for for false teachers in 1 John 4, 2, and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So if if Jesus was not God in the flesh, then his teaching really doesn't have any more authority than any other good teacher. But also, if, if Jesus was not God, then his death is not sufficient to atone for our sins. God's holiness demands a penalty for sin, and he required a perfect sacrifice This also says that he was manifested in the flesh. It doesn't say he was made or created, but manifested. Jesus existed for all time and was not was not created at the time that he was born. Next is vindicated by the spirit. There's kind of two ways that that Jesus was vindicated. One was was in his identity as God. It was during his life, no one questioned whether Jesus was a man. No one questioned whether he was a human being. That much was obvious. He was born in a stable. That The shepherds were witnesses to that. And during his life, he grew in wisdom and stature. He ate and slept and cried and prayed. He sweated and he bled. But the thing that got him crucified was his teaching that he was God, that he was the Son of God. There there had been glimpses of his divinity through his life. After his baptism, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and he cast out demons by the Spirit of God in in Matthew 12. And in Matthew 7, we see that the crowds noted that he taught as one who had authority. But the, the final and irrefutable evidence of his divinity and his identity as a person of God was his physical Bodily resurrection from a physical bodily death and we see this in, in Romans 1 4 Where Paul says he was declared to be the son of God in power According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord So by his resurrection he was declared by the spirit to be the son of God and the other part of, of this vindication was that of his holiness, of his perfect sinless being. If, if Jesus were just um, masquerading as the Son of God, if he were truly uh, sinful, had a sinful nature like, like the rest of us, and then he would not have been raised from the dead. And Hebrews 4.15 says, He was tempted in all parts like we are, yet he was without sin. And First Peter 2 also says, He committed no sin. So we see in his resurrection we are convinced of his divinity as well as his sinless humanity. Next is seen by angels. This is a little bit more difficult to to understand um, exactly what what he's referring to. It's interesting to to note the times that the angels appeared in the life of Jesus. They were witnesses to his life from, they, they foretold his birth to Mary and Joseph, they announced his birth to the shepherds, they directed the flight to Egypt when Herod sought to kill Jesus, they ministered to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness, they came to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, they rolled away the stone from the tomb and announced his resurrection, and they were present at his ascension. So basically you have angels, witnesses to the life of Jesus. But they're also witnesses to the glory of the redemption story. And we see this in 1 Peter 1.12 where he says, The angels desired to look into the things that were prophesied by the prophets regarding the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. They, they, they knew that, that something was up, that, that God had a plan, but they, they wanted to look into this. And we see in Ephesians 3.10, that it is through the church that the wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And finally, we see in Revelation, the angels are worshiping the lamb saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To the angels, too, are are witnesses of the, the wonder of this redemption story. Next is proclaimed among the nations. And this was basically starting at, at Pentecost, the disciples and the apostles who had witnessed the life and teaching of Jesus began to, to boldly proclaim the gospel. They didn't just stay in Jerusalem, but but spread this message throughout the Roman Empire. And even when they faced incredible persecution, they did not retreat. And this boldness of the apostles is cited as, as one of the evidences for the authority and authenticity of the resurrection some people say the resurrection was just a hoax that that the disciples just made this up to propagate their message but it is unlikely that all 12 of them would have been willing to face a life of torture or be willing to face torture and death through their life of, of ministering the gospel if in fact they were were spreading an untruth and that's not to say that all people who suffer for their beliefs are suffering for the truth, but they probably are suffering for something that they sincerely believe in. And the apostles sincerely believed and were witnesses to the resurrection, and they were willing to suffer for it. And as a result of that we see that he was believed on in the world. Their their message was accepted by those who heard it, and we see in the record of Acts that there were thousands of people that responded to this. And this didn't just stay local to Jerusalem or or to the Jews. It it spread throughout the entire known world. And finally, it says Jesus was taken up in glory. After Jesus completed his ministry on earth, he was taken up into heaven. This wasn't just being taken up into heaven the same way that that Elijah was, was caught up in the whirlwind and taken into heaven, as we see in 2 Kings. But when Jesus returned to heaven, he was highly exalted and given a name above every name, as described in Philippians 2. And he returned to his place of glory at the right hand of the Father. And this is the summary of the gospel. This is the central message on which we stand as a church. A proper understanding of the person of Christ will influence the way we live our lives. If Jesus is just a collection of stories that we review on Sunday at church, he will not have much influence on us the other six days of the week. But if he is a real, living, breathing person who walked on earth and suffered and died so that all mankind can be reconciled to God, then we will order our lives in a way that reflects our understanding of that sovereignty and holiness. And we can look around us at the mess that the world is in and... and wring our hands about the, the mess that we're in politically. And the, the solution though, as, as we look at that, isn't to implement new legislation or new legislators. If we're going to maintain a, a sustainable society, it's because we as parents and families and churches are committed to the truth of the gospel more than, than we are to the message of compromise or tolerance of sin or acceptance of other religions that is is being preached in the popular culture. And it's not just out there. When we come face to face with the sinfulness and ungodliness of our own hearts, and when when we see this ungodliness in those we love and in our family, we are reminded that Christ died for us too. It's not just for the sins of the, the pagans and the godless. Our own hearts are just as broken and prone to wonder. And but for the grace of God, we too would be chasing the futile dreams of the world. One person who understood this reality of the, the sacrifice of Christ and the, the change that it wrought in his life was, was Richard Wormbrand, who was a Christian in communist Romania after World War II. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel and endured eight years of unspeakable torture and suffering because of his faith. Eventually he was released, and in spite of being warned not to preach again, he went right back to preaching in the underground church, and a couple years later he was discovered and returned to prison for another five years. He describes some of the experiences of prison in his book, Tortured for Christ, and talks about how the Christians were willing to to suffer in, in spite of or they were willing to, to preach Christ in spite of the suffering that they knew they would experience. The, the one thing that they did in, in prison, that the Christians would, wanted to preach the gospel to the other prisoners, but they knew the penalty for preaching was having a beating. And so he said that it was actually a good arrangement, that, that they would preach the gospel and the guards would get to beat them, and so they were both happy. And, and he says how, how one guy was preaching, and the guards burst in and and um, found him, took him to the beating room, beat him mercilessly, finally brought him back and threw him on the floor of the cell. And he slowly gathered himself together, looked around, and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off before I was interrupted? And kept on preaching. And he says he's not able to describe the... the um, significant of the torture and the, the suffering that they went through because it was, it was inhuman. And, and many prisoners died from the severity of, of the beatings and the torture. He survived. He, he was eventually released from prison. He, he describes his, his love for the communists, and he says, quote, The gates of heaven are not closed for the communists. Neither is the light quenched for them. They can repent like everyone else and we must call them to repentance. Only love can change the communist and the terrorists, a love that must be clearly distinguished from compromise with non-Christian philosophies practiced by many church leaders. And then he goes on to say, a man really believes not what he recites in his creed, but only the things he is ready to die for. The, the mystery of godliness is not finally a creed, but a person. Truth is not finally a proposition, but the person of Jesus Christ. What do you believe? Do you know this Jesus we proclaim? Are you willing to show sacrificial love to those in need and to those who have hurt you? I will close with the first two verses of Hebrews 12.